Okay, so the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 35. A couple weeks ago, we were studying the last good king of Israel, his name, Josiah. There's a lot of Josiahs that a lot of kids, boys, have been named Josiah in the last 35 years, although I think it's getting a little less popular. You know how names go in and out. Um, and, uh, but Josiah, I tell you, it's a great name. It's a, he's a great king. Um, he comes along, and uh, his, his grandfather, Manasseh, who we talked about on Sunday morning, reigned for 55 years, and uh, again, the things that Manasseh did and the people of Israel did are so bad, you know, I didn't even want to read them on Sunday morning. I'm not going to read them again today. Uh, Manasseh's son, Ammon, I think he just lived two years, and then Josiah all of a sudden is king, and I really, you know, it really shows you just about the supernatural wonder and grace of God that he raises up a good king like Josiah, even though the land was so exceedingly dark for 55 years. It's like, how did this happen? How's a guy like Josiah uh, 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 come along? Well, the Lord does that. The Lord seeks his glory. The Lord wants to see his, um, his glory. It says that in, when he was 16, it says in verse 3 of chapter 34, while he was still young, he began to seek the Lord. So there, we have some young folks in the room right now. And you're thinking, oh, I, you know, maybe I'll seek the Lord when I'm older like my parents. No, it says, while he was still young, he began to seek the Lord. And um, so he, he sought the Lord, and among other things, he cleaned up the temple. And what happens? He uh, cl- cleans up the temple, and they find the Bible. The Bible had been lost. That's how bad things have gotten, had gotten in the reign of his grandfather, Manasseh. Uh, they, they, the, the, I don't know what's worse, losing the Bible or the fact that people didn't even realize the Bible was lost. I mean, they didn't even know it was lost. That's how bad things, have got, things had gotten, and that's why when we read a couple weeks ago that list, which was so horrifying from Leviticus 18, I know I was misquoting it on Sunday. I was saying Leviticus 13. Uh, <laughs> even though Josh yelled out from the back. <laughs> um, that list was, was just so horrifying. It's because there was no Bible. And let us not deceive ourselves that we couldn't go right back to that place if our nation loses the Bible, which in many parts it, 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 it's, it, it's happened. But um, he, uh, they find the Bible. They he gets every he, 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 the king is horrified when the Bible's read to him because he realizes we're not doing any of this stuff. He brings out all the people of Israel, and the Bible is read before him. They make a covenant before the Lord. Meaning a promise, yeah, we're going to um, follow the Bible, but unfortunately it was shallow. It was nothing more than something that they were saying with their lips because in their hearts they, they didn't really mean it. And that's why um, we're going to see everything crumble, fall apart, and there's not going to be anything left really of Israel by the time we finish the next chapter. But Josiah is still king, and um, again, he goes to a prophet. Her name is Huldah, and they said, what's going to become of us because we've been disobeying this Bible so bad? She says that Israel is going to be destroyed, but not in your lifetime. Why? Verse 27, because your heart was tender before the Lord, and I, I pray that for myself all the time, all the time. I pray, Lord, would just my heart be tender before you? That's what we want. Not a hard heart, but tender. Our, our, it doesn't take a lot for our hearts to get hard. I'm telling you right now. It doesn't take more than a few days, actually, for your hearts to get hard. So important that we go before the Lord and open up our hearts. 
Blessed is the man in, whom, in whose heart is no deceit, Psalm 32 says. And when we get that deceit out of our heart, when we're just transparent and say, God, the ugliness is here, our heart becomes tender. But Hulda says that nation's going to be destroyed, but instead of saying, oh, the nation's going to be destroyed, let's just give up, eat, drink, and be married. He, he, has the, he gathers the whole nation of Israel. Maybe it'll be like Jonah and uh, you know, Nineveh where God said Nineveh would be destroyed, but then it wasn't. He relented. And so he got, goes out, gets the people, reads the word to them, and then in chapter 35, verse 1, it says, now Josiah, everyone have a Bible? If you need a Bible, raise your hand. David will run it to you. Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the fourth month. And he set the priests in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. So we're going to talk a little bit more um, about the Passover, but first, verse 3. Then he said to the Levites, remember the Levites are the church workers. Then he said to the Levites who taught all Israel who were holy to the Lord, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel built. It shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people. Um, Israel. So now if you're a student of the Bible and you read verse 3 and which says Josiah said to the, the Levites, the, the, the temple workers, put the holy, um, holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel built. Uh, you, if, you, if you're a student of the Bible, you're like, what in the world is that talking about? And, and, and the reason is what is the Ark of the Covenant doing outside the temple? The temple was built. The Ark of the Covenant, remember, this was built in the wilderness with Moses. And there's the Ark, and inside is, are the, uh, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. Um, and originally, there was also some manna put in there, and, 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 uh, and Aaron's, um, Aaron's rod was in there. But it, by this time... It just has the two tablets. It says the presence of the Lord would be over the Ark of the Covenant. It was never supposed to leave the temple. And so this is just again shows how bad things have got. The Bible had been lost. The, the law had been lost. The Ar Holy Ark is outside of the temple. Only God knows why. It doesn't say why it was in there. So it, it's put back um, in the temple. So again, Josiah is, is reordering things. And um, in many places, uh, uh, this, is, uh, this very thing is happening in the United States. When I got to um, New England, when I returned to Massachusetts 25 years ago, I was born here, moved away when I was nine. But um, when I came here 25 years ago, there was an article that two churches a month were closing down in Massachusetts. There was another church that was just about to close down, and, and they made Pastor Freddie the, the pastor, and they had their first service last Sunday, praise the Lord. Um, what had happened in Israel, as soon as you lose the Bible, the Bible's prevalence in people's lives, so goes the church, so goes the temple. But here, um, just like the Lord put Freddie and he brought in Josiah to reestablish um, the teaching of the word and, and, and the Bible's brought back out and, and uh, as well the ark is put in the temple. Verse 4, prepare yourselves according to your father's houses, according to your division, verse 4, following the written instructions of David, king of Israel, and the written instruction of Solomon, his son. So, Earlier on in 1 Chronicles 23, verse 26, there had been all these instructions to the Levites, the church workers, you guys are going to do this, you guys are going to do that. There was a lot about worship um, in those cha chapters. Levites, um, with their different instruments, were told to uh, 
they were told to rotate throughout the day. There was 24-hour worship there. Josiah puts all that in place. Uh, verse 5, and stand in the holy place according to the divisions of the father's house of your brethren, the lay people, and according to the division of the father's house of the Levites. And then in verse 6, it says, so slaughter the Passover. So they're going to have this Passover feast. They hadn't had the Passover in many, many years uh, by this time. They had had, had one um, Manasseh ruled for 55 years. His father was Hezekiah, a good king. Hezekiah did the Passover as well. They're supposed to have it every year, but again, they lost the Bible. They didn't even know they were supposed to have a Passover. Now, the Passover is a real big deal for not only the Jews, but really the, any Christian because 2 Corinthians says, Jesus Christ is our Passover. That's what the Bible says. Now, again, I'm sorry for those of you who have heard it 200 times. You're going to have to hear it a 201st time right now. But the Passover was instituted when the Israelites, at the time they were rescued from slavery in Egypt, and God delivered them from Egypt. And on the last night, they were told that if you want to avoid this 10th plague that I'm going to judge, punish Egypt with, because they're not letting you go, which is the death of all the firstborn sons throughout all the lands, you take a lamb, you slit its neck, the blood is going to flow. Oops. Okay, just went off for a second. You're going to take that blood, you're going to put some of it over the door, some of it on the sides of the door, and of course the blood over the door was going to drip down on the floor, so it's a sign of the cross, and then you're going to eat the Passover lamb. And just like Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you ask me in, come in, I'll eat with you. That's, so speak, speaking of not a religion, but a what? A relationship. We eat with with Jesus. And so all that is a forerunner of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah. That's why it's given such a, a high priority in the scripture. And it's such a, they're making such a big deal. They're saying, slaughter the Passover lamb. Jesus was slaughtered up to and while he was crucified. He was slaughtered, the Passover lamb. The, the, the interesting thing about the, the children of Israel and why the Passover was so, was so important, the Passover feast, is they were literally under the power of the mightiest king and kingdom in the whole world, the Egyptians, and they were delivered supernaturally by God. I mean, how do slaves, they were slaves. How does a slave somehow get up from underneath the weight and the power of someone like the Egyptian pharaoh with the army that he had, all his iron chariots? How does that happen? By God alone. By the Passover. How does someone like you, who is under... You were under the weight of sin, just the weight and burden of sin. Sin is characterized in the Bible as a weight. On Sunday mornings, we've been studying um, the opposite of that, which is a freedom, a liberty. But how do you get under the, um, out from underneath the weight of sin? By the Passover lamb. Israel was born of God that night. Their freedom was born of God. You were born again. You were born of God, getting out from underneath the heavy weight of sin and the condemnation of hell. And that's, that's, that's why 2 Corinthians again, Jesus is our Passover lamb. It says in verse 6, they slaughtered the Passover offerings. The, and he said, consecrate yourselves, prepare them for your brethren, 
that they may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Again, remember, they found the word of the Lord. And, and now Josiah is saying, you got to do it now, guys. And so verse 7, it says, Josiah gave the lay people lambs and young goats from the flock. Now, this is what a mighty man of God this guy is. The people didn't have their own lambs. <laughs> They didn't even know that they were supposed to be saving up the money each year for a lamb to have their Passover. This guy is such a man of God, he just hands out lambs to all the people. You are going to have a Passover. And he gives them to them. He gave them lambs and young goats from the flocks, all for Passover offerings, for all who were present, to the number of 30,000 as well as 3,000 cattle, and these were the king's possessions. He gives away 30,000 lambs and young goats. It says, and the leaders gave willingly to the people. So the, the leaders gave to the people. They gave, again, the lambs, they, they, whatever was necessary for the people. As I was reading this, I'm just reminded of the disciples, Jesus' 12 apostles, they're arguing at the Last Supper, who was the greatest? At the Last Supper. It's like, wow, haven't you guys figured it out? Like, watching Jesus? No, they're just like us. We watch the faithfulness of Jesus in our life, and then we're not faithful. But he remains faithful, because he cannot deny himself, the Bible says, but so they were arguing who was the greatest. So Jesus gets, he, he says to them, listen, the Gentiles exercise lordship over their people. Meaning, in the Gentile world, pagan, people who don't know God, leaders, their whole purpose of life is to be served by others. Verse 26 of Luke 21, but or rather Luke 22, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be the younger. He who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. And you have that picture here in Second Chronicles 35 of the leaders not saying, hey, everyone, you know, I lead you people. You need to come here and, and, and give me your whatever, taxes or whatever. No, they gave the people the lambs for the Passover, verse 8. And it says they gave willingly to the priests, priest, to the Levites. Hilkiah, Zechariah, Jael, rulers of the house of God, gave to the priests for the Passover offerings 2,000 600 from the flock and 300 cattle. So yet, this is what leadership is about. It's, it's about being the lowest. You want to lead? You have to go down. Verse 9. Also, Conaniah, his brother, Shemaiah, and Nathanael, and Hashabiah, and Jeel, and Jozabad, chief of the Levites, gave to the Levites for Passover offerings 5,000 from the flock and 500 cattle. So the leaders really stepping up to the plate and being... Um, themselves a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, so the service was prepared, the priests stood in their places, and the Levites in their division, and according to the king's command, they slaughtered the Passover offerings. And the priests sprinkled the blood with their hands while the Levites skinned the animals. And so... I've said this quite a few times, you know, in a sense, in the Old Testament, uh, the New Covenant is called a better covenant than the Old Covenant, but in some respects, they had it better than us because when people came with a lamb or, or an offering, they were required to put their hand on the offering, and they were required to actually slit the throat and see the blood go down, and, and, and that sounds really gory, but... Why would that be an advantage over us? Because they were able, able to see firsthand in the most gruesome way what their sin had caused to an innocent life. So I pray all the time that somehow, by the Spirit, my preach through my preaching on Sunday morning, that you and I 
would see the connection between our sin and the slaughter of Jesus Christ. See, they had that advantage. They, the, the, that it was just so gory. It was all just in front of them. This blood is pouring out. And it's like, wow, my sin, this is what it caused. Your sin caused the blood of Jesus Christ to be poured out. And so that is what is happening here, um, here in Second Chronicles 35. They, verse 12, then they removed the burnt offerings that they might give them to the divisions of the Father's house of the lay people to offer to the Lord, as it is written in the book of Moses. So they did with the cattle. Also, they roasted the Passover offerings with fire, according to the ordinance, but the other holy offerings they boiled in pots and cauldrons and in pans and divided them quickly among all the lay people. So the Passover was a feast of the people. Now some things like burnt offerings, for example, you see in Leviticus, the whole offering was consumed by fire and nothing was eaten. But the Passover is a celebration um, of that day when they were delivered, uh, much like when we have communion and we have the cup and the, and the bread, it's a celebration of our deliverance from sin. Jesus paying the purchase price on the cross, but it was a feast of the people uh, at the Passover, and that's what it's referring to there. Verse 14, then afterward they prepared portions for themselves and for the priests because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were busy in offering burnt offerings and fat until night. Therefore, the Levites prepared portions for themselves and for the priests and the sons of Aaron. So they were so busy all day doing this Passover that they hadn't had the opportunity to even eat themselves. Verse 15, and the singers... The sons of Asaph were in their places according to the command of David, Asaph, Heman, and Judithan, the king's seer. Also, the gatekeepers were at each gate. They did not have to leave their position because their brethren, the Levites, prepared portions for them. So everyone is sharing in the Passover. They're bringing a Passover feast to the different people, to the musicians, to the gatekeepers. They're just bringing them kind of like, I don't know, when you see the ushers bring up the, uh, the, the communion and laying it in front of the worshipers in our service, same kind of things were going on uh, there. They're, they're passing it out. Verse 16, so all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. The children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time in the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. So that would have been about 400 years, 450 years. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Israel. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. Okay, so now you're going to get the rest of this chapter. There's a very strange turn of events. It's surprising. Every time I read it, it's like, man, this is a bummer. This is a big-time bummer. Why did this happen? You're like, what is he talking about? Well, let's read. Verse 20, after this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho king of Egypt came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates and Josiah went out against him. So the, the Egypt, now th by the, at this time Josiah was a completely, Israel was a completely independent country. No one ruled over it. God had given them favor. They didn't pay taxes to any other king from a tribute to any other king from a foreign place. The Egypt, which is to their south, goes, 
He's on his way, and he's going to the Euphrates to, um, to fight against Carchemish. So the Babylon, I believe that's the Babylonians. He's going out to battle, but, he, but the, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt, needs to pass either through or by Israel. In verse 21, um, it, says, um, it says that Josiah, it says, went out against the Egyptians. So he's like, wait a second, why are these people coming through the land? I got to do something about this. And he, uh, he goes out against them. But the, verse 21 says, the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, sent messengers to him saying, what have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come out against you this day, but against the house with which I have war meaning I'm not going to battle against you. I'm just trying to get through your land up to another land to fight another king. And then he says, this Egyptian pharaoh says, for, but for God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Now that's weird, right? I mean, why God is speaking through like a foreign king here to a godly man named Josiah. Now, someone like Josiah is probably thinking, yeah, this is another example of someone speaking in the name of God, and it's not God. He's just saying that because throughout the Bible, we have seen that. Our study of the Old Testament, we've seen this. We have seen people say, God told me this, and he never said that. So it's a common thing. And Josiah doesn't believe him. But as it turns out, it was true. God really was speaking through this foreign king. This happens sometimes. God sometimes speaks through people who are not even Christians. They're not even God's people, but he will use them. He may even use them in your life. Sometimes a boss may speak to you or some person may speak to you. They're not saved at all. But for some reason, God wants to talk to you for whatever reason. And this Pharaoh says, no, God says, you're not supposed to come up against me. Josiah doesn't believe him. Verse 22 says, nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So right there we're told it was actually God speaking through the Pharaoh. Uh, so he came to fight him in the valley of Megiddo, Megiddo and the archers shot King Josiah and the king said to his ser servants, take me away for I'm severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had and they brought him to Jerusalem. So he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah. So Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet, that real long prophetic book that we will get to someday, um, went to his funeral. And to this day, all the singing men and the singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentation. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in the, uh, in the laments. Um, now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of the Lord, and his deeds from the first to the last, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. So what's with that? That's like the strangest turn of events. Doesn't that kind of bum you out when you read it? I mean, the first time I read it, Wow, this is, this is so strange. My personal feeling about this, I can't prove it, is that the Lord really, really loved Josiah and just wanted to take him, take him to himself. This does happen sometimes. He takes his children and he brings them to himself. And one of my all-time heroes is Keith Green. I if you've never heard about Keith Green, I, I wish you would familiarize yourself with him. He was a musician in the late 70s, early 80s, and 
when you listen to them, you're like, wow, I've never heard another person worship like this, ever. It's like, it's almost like Keith Green listening to him, it's almost like you're listening to someone who's in their private prayer closet. And he, he wrote so many good songs, like every single one of his songs, is, this is amazing. And um, he, when he was 28 years old, he had bought this ranch. He wanted to use it for the Lord. He was being, he, he, he was, he, he, he bought this ranch and he, um, he was using it for YWAM, Youth with a Mission, and just to start a big ministry there. And they had acquired a little, a small little airplane, a little like eight-seater. And uh, he, I don't even know if it was, Eight, maybe it was a six-seater, but anyway, Keith Green brings his two of his kids in there, and about I don't know how many other people. There's twelve people. There's four more people that should have been in in, in this little plane, and the thing goes down, and they all die. It's the strangest ending. I mean, it's kind of like Josiah. It's like Josiah, why did you do that, Keith? Like, why did you do that? I mean, but. I really feel like the Lord just wanted to bring him to himself. I, mean, it, I think he does this sometimes. And unfortunately, other people do have to suffer whenever, whenever we do um, stupid things. Like, I'm, sh I'm sure other people died in this battle with this, this Pharaoh. But I do believe that the Lord just took him for himself. But one thing, there are things to learn here. Even a mighty man of God like this, you never see any mention of prayer. He's just assuming that this is a good idea. But some of you have heard me say, just because it's a good idea doesn't mean what? Doesn't mean it's God's idea. I mean, come on, this guy's going through Israel. This is the Holy Land, of course. God would never want me to just sit here and do nothing. Well, yeah, he wanted, wants you to sit there and do nothing. Sometimes God wants you to sit there and do nothing. And sometimes our zeal for God gets in the way. He didn't stop. He didn't pray about it. I think he lacked an understanding of grace. Sometimes the Lord, sometimes we get real hyper-spiritual, and we think, oh, if I'm spiritual, i got to do this thing and that thing. No, not all the time. Sometimes God just wants you to rest and not get involved in other people's business, even though it seems like it's the right thing to do. And uh, sometimes that's a really, really hard thing to do. But he, he doesn't pray. He goes out into battle, and he gets killed. And the Lord brings him to himself. Now, I believe the Lord, my personal feeling is the Lord just wants to bring him to himself the greater purpose is because the time had run out for Israel and he wanted to judge Israel, which he's going to do. There's not going to be another good king. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed and burned. And almost everyone is, or is going to be carted away to Babylon. And I think just the time had come. You know, you, you read these things in the Bible, in the fullness of time, God did this, or the fullness of time. By this time, the, the, the sin of, of, of Jerusalem had just reached such a place, their time was up. It, you know, it's interesting that uh, it actually says of this time, as we go on into chapter 36, where we're going to read about the end. It's the end of Jerusalem. It's not going to be the end. They are going to come back 70 years later about. But, um, but in, in 2 Kings 24, it, it more or less says this. It says, because of all the sin during Manasseh's time and all the innocent blood that Manasseh shed during his time, he had filled Jerusalem with his innocent blood, it says the Lord would not pardon it. In other words, it had gotten to a place where things were so bad, God's judgment was certain. In other words, it wasn't going to be a Nineveh thing. 
with Jonah, where Jonah went into Nineveh and said, in 40 days, God's going to destroy this place. But they, they repented, and God had mercy. But it just had gotten so bad that the time of judgment had come. I, you know, I did a study one time on the difference, because if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, there was, when, when Josiah came into office, he went throughout all the land and he destroyed all the pagan idols, he tore them down, and he even burned the bones of, 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 of priests who were offering sacrifices to foreign gods. He was, he was doing all this stuff. Um, but really, the revival was was limited to just Josiah and a few people. It wasn't everywhere else in the land. But if you go back to um, Hezekiah, the last revival we had seen, if you read about Hezekiah's revival, you read things like with Hezekiah, like um, Hezekiah... Chapter 2 Chronicles 29, verse 36, just says that all the Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people, meaning that God, their hearts were in a different place. And then Hezekiah prayed for the people. He said, may the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek the Lord. So, the Lord answered the prayer, meaning the people had prepared their heart to seek the Lord. They were actually seeking God during that revival. You never see that kind of language when Josiah comes through and starts trying to get the people to come back to God. No one, there's no language that the people themselves started to seek God. If you remember when we were studying Asa, Asa was Jehoshaphat's father. He was another really good king. It said, all of Israel sought the Lord with all their heart. That was like a real revival. So with Josiah, all that was really happening was people were doing good works, kind of. They started going back to church, but their heart wasn't into God. I was just sharing with a brother on Sunday who said he's been coming to church because he knows that at church there's other Christians. And I said, that's not why you should be going to church, because there's other Christians. You should be going to church for God, to seek God, to be with God. The fact that there's other Christians, praise the Lord, yes. But the main purpose of going to church is not to be around other Christians. It's to be with God. Now, it's true, the church is called the body of Christ. So in a sense, you know, uh, uh, being with Christians, it's, it's, it's part of being with God. But, but I think you guys know what I mean. It's like seeking the presence of the Lord and not just being religious. And this guy was just being religious, and he knew it. And it was a wonderful conversation. But so uh, chapter 36, this is the end of the kingdom of Israel, at least with a throne, uh, a king on the throne in Jerusalem. Jesus, by the way, is going to come back um, someday, and he's going to sit on the throne. But this is really the last time there's truly a king sitting on a throne in Israel. Um, there was a brief time, the time of the Maccabees, where uh, the that they were, Israel was in control of the area, but there was really, there, there will be no king until Jesus comes back. It says in chapter 36, verse 1, then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem, but now the king of Egypt deposed him at Jerusalem, imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Then the king of Egypt made Jehoahaz's brother Eliakim king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Nico took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him off to Egypt. So remember, this guy, this Pharaoh Egypt, 
killed Josiah. And so when Josiah was killed, his son Jehoahaz becomes king, but for whatever reason, the Pharaoh didn't like him, so after three months, drags him back to Egypt, puts his brother in place, and his brother's name is Jehoiakim. So verse 5, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. So really a tragedy when a boy, a young boy, grows up with godly parents and decides, no, I'm just going to do evil anyway. I'm just going to be evil myself. And so remember, by this time, sort of God had given over Israel to judgment. Uh, And so he just decides to do evil, even though he had that example in his dad. His dad was not like a guy, you know, he had 10 years of backsliding or something like that. Josiah was really good from beginning to the end. He made a mistake at the end. Verse 6, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and brought him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. So remember, there's this conflict between Egypt and Babylon. So apparently at the beginning, Egypt put Israel under its tribute, but then Egypt weakened, and so Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar shows up, and he comes against Joachim, the son of Josiah, and he drags him back to Babylon. So the first king was dragged back in chains to Egypt. The second king is dragged back to to Babylon. Now, interestingly, verse 7 says, Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also brought back people, Jews, to Babylon the most educated Jews, craftsmen, people like that. So name four of them. Name four of those Jews that he took back to to Babylon. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were amongst these four people, and we'll read about them in the book of Daniel, who were taken back. They were made eunuchs, by the way. I mean, it's terrible. Um, These young men, they were made eunuchs, and they were put into the service of the king of Babylon. It was a brutal, brutal world. It still is a brutal world in different other ways, but... um, Verse 8, now the rest of the acts of Joachim, the abomination... Abomination, by the way, is an exceedingly great sin. Every once in a while, you'll hear someone say, well, all sin is really the same. That's not true. An abomination is an exceedingly great sin in the eyes of the Lord. It's true that any sin will send you to hell. Even the most subtle, tiny little thought of pride, which is a sin, it will send you to hell. But there are some sins that are called an abomination. And this guy Jehoiakim had committed abominations. Uh, now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations which he did and what was found against them, indeed they are written in the, in the books of the kings of Israel and Judah. Then Jehoiachin, I'm going to quiz you guys all these names after. His son, meaning Josiah's grandson, reigned in his place. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king. Now, in the book of 2 King, it says he was 18 years old. And on Tuesday night, I actually like to talk about this stuff. Why is it in 2 Kings, it's 18 years old when he became king, and here he says he's eight years old? I believe that this is a copyist, me and, and, and me and most conservative biblical scholars believe it's a copyist error, meaning when the 
fr from, from the, you know, the transcripts were copied over the centuries. And I think with Hebrew, with numbers, you just miss a dot and all of a sudden it changes. It changes the number. Um, and so this appears to be a copyist error because here it says eight years old. Second King says he was 18. Now, in my footnote, it does say in a number of manuscripts, including the Septuagint, it does say 18. I think what's important is that you don't throw the baby out with a bathrod or, well, well that just is one little thing here, so the rest of the entire Bible must be false. No, don't be... Don't play the fool. Um, there are certain times like this where you, know, there's other th you can do your own study. There's other explanations for it. But here it says eight years old. I believe it's supposed to be 18. When he became king, he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. At the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him and took him to Babylon with the costly articles from the house of the Lord and made Zedekiah, Joachim's brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem. So Zedekiah was another son of Josiah. And at this time, other Jews, we know that other Jews were, were taken um, as well at this time back to Babylon Zedekiah, verse 11, was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. So if you go into the book of Jeremiah, you will get a history of Jeremiah confronting this guy, Zedekiah, this last king. This guy, Zedekiah, had the backbone of of a jellyfish. I mean, when he was speaking with Jeremiah, he would like, yeah, yeah, I got to listen to you. But as soon as he was speaking with like powerful princes and nobles in the land who didn't like Jeremiah because they didn't like the fact that Jeremiah was telling him their life was all about sin, he would do what they told him to do, including throwing him in prison. At one point, he gets put in a well that didn't have water in it, but he had mud in it, and he, you know, he just throws the prophet Jeremiah down into a well. He's living in the mud, and food is um, you know, sent down to him by ropes or whatever. He is just really one guy you look at, and, and you're like, ah, this is not, this is an unsavory uh, character. This is a guy who is just... Ugh. like the consummate coward and hypocrite, Jeremiah would confront him and then he would do what Jeremiah said as long, and, but, he would, but he says, I'm going to do what you say, Jeremiah, but whatever you do, don't tell those other people what I'm doing. This is the king speaking. I mean, he was a total coward. And, uh, but in, in verse 13, it says, he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. And so what we don't read here that we read in the book of 2 Kings is that Zedekiah rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar comes with an army, surrounds Jerusalem, and then being the coward that he was, he, 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 he made a little hole in the wall of Jerusalem and tried to escape, leaving all his subjects behind to deal with the enemy, but he was found out. Nebuchadnezzar brings him and his sons together, has his sons killed right in front of him, and then he plucks his eyes out. By the way, I think that was one of the, um, one of the prophecies of either Ezekiel or Jeremiah saying um, that he will go to Babylon, but he'll never see it. Something like that. It was a prophecy like that. It's because he wasn't going to have eyes. 
So he really had a terrible ending. It said, it says here, moreover, verse 14, moreover, all the leaders of the priests of the people transgress more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. So if you go to the book of Ezekiel, not now, you don't have to go there now, but in Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel is living in Babylon by this time, and the Lord takes him like in a vision or transports his body or something 900 miles away back to Jerusalem and has him look into the temple. And it says in Ezekiel chapter 8.10, there's all kinds of creeping things, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel inside the temple. They had brought them in the temple. And Ezekiel also saw in this, vin- uh, this vision 25 men inside the temple worshiping the sun towards the east. So that's what it's referring to there. They just started doing all kinds of terrible things just like had happened in the reign of Manasseh. Verse 15, the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. So uh, he would send prophet after prophet after prophet to warn the people. Why? Because he had compassion on them. And he'll do the same thing with you. Almost everyone I've ever met, a Christian who's, who's gone into a season of sin, will admit, yeah, I was warned repeatedly, <laughs> but I went ahead anyway because <laughs> I loved my sin. Uh, God's compassionate. He's doing that because he's compassionate. He doesn't like to judge. The Lord's heart is not into judgment. It says that in the book of Lamentation. When he judges, he doesn't do it like from his heart, meaning the, that era of his heart, which he loves. He does, it's like, you know, you've heard all the time where your parent is spanking his kids. Look, I, I, I'm doing this. It hurts me to do this. It hurts the Lord to judge people. It says, um, verse 16, but they mocked the messengers of God. They mocked them. They laughed at them. They despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. So when someone's laughing at you, this last Sunday morning, I had someone laugh at me because I tried to witness to them. I've been trying to witness to people before church. Uh, I'm out in Franklin Park walking around, and I asked the Lord. And um, I, I hate to say this, it's usually a white guy that laughs at me. Because blacks and Hispanics, they're, they're usually were taken by their family, their grandma or somewhere. They have, they have reverence for the Lord. But people like me, who have a pro, especially with a Protestant heritage, they just laugh at you. It happened again a month ago. Another white guy just laughs at me, walks away. <laughs> and I pray for them. I pray for them. Lord, I don't know why you had mercy on me because I have the same background that they have. But when someone laughs at you, it's not like you're the first person that, who was a messenger of God that it's ever been laughed at. People have been laughing at people. We saw it in the Hezekiah. In, that, in, in Hezekiah, um, we saw Hezekiah send people out. And it says they... They, they told people, return to the Lord, and it says they laughed at them. They mocked them, it says. You're not the first person who's going to be mocked. Verse 17, it says, well, it says, actually, let's continue that. It says, they despised his word, scoffed at his prophet, until the wrath of the Lord arose against people until there was no remedy, meaning it was over. I mean, there comes a time where the judgment of God, it's coming. This, this freight train is coming. <laughs> and praise the Lord, I, I do believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. It's not appointed. The wrath 
or the wrath of God is not appointed for the children of God. In the time of tribulation, the church is going to be taken out. It says there, verse 17, therefore he brought against them the king of the, uh, the is it the Chaldeans or the Chaldeans? Chaldeans, okay. I, I'm really, it's honestly, that's <laughs> My wife thinks I, Stephanie thinks I purposely say that wrong. It's the Chaldeans, who are the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, had no compassion on young men or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. So the Babylonians just come in, they kill everybody. Don't care. Old, small. This is serious judgment here. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and all of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. So the Persians came in, they defeated the Babylonians eventually, and they became ruler of the land. Verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Jeremiah predicted all this until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So what's all that about? Well, so um, they were in exile for 70 years. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, the Israelites were told, every seven years, rest the land for an entire year, meaning do not plant do not seed, do nothing. I will give you a double harvest. I'll give you, in the sixth year, I'll give you enough food to last seven years. Don't trust in me. Don't go out and sow seed. And for 490 years, which is right about when the first king came in, King Saul. It's a little longer than that. They never obeyed this, this law in Leviticus 25. They just went on harvesting in the seventh year for 490 years. So Jeremiah said, yeah, because of that, you guys are going to be kicked out of this land for 70 years because you ignored 70 times, you ignored the Sabbath year. And so it laid rest. The land laid rest. All those years, the land was supposed to be laying rest every seventh year. But it wasn't? Well, it was. When the Israelites were all exiled, the land laid rest for 70 years. Verse 22, now in the first year of Cyrus, so this is going forward, I'm not sure how many years. Something like 50 or 60, something like that. The first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So it was about 70 years after the first exile to Babylon. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in his writing, saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kings of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you by all his people. May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So what that's about is after 70 years, the king, a pagan king, so once, he, once, against here, once again here, you have someone who's not a Christian, he's not a Jew, he's not a worshiper of God, but God's using him as a mouthpiece and saying, go back to Jerusalem. So it, it, it jumps ahead about 50 or 60 years here because there was three separate times where the, the Jews were sent off to Babylon, and I, th- I think 70 years began at the first one. But you jump forward 70 years, there's this king, okay, Jews go back and rebuild the, um, rebuild the house of God at Jerusalem. So it's just jumping forward as to when that's going to happen. And, and when we're in Ezra and Nehemiah, which we're going to next, we're going to read about that when... 
um, the Jews go back to the land and rebuild the temple. There's not going to be a king. They're always going to have rulers over them, including the Romans eventually, which under Jesus' time, but they will get their temple back. So that's what we have, the end of Second Chronicles. And uh, what should be my concluding remark? Well, can Matt and Nadia come up? Can you do a closing worship song while they're coming up? You know, I, I think what just rests on my heart is I... As, as we finish up these words in second, uh, the, these words in Second Chronicles, with, which is basically the end of the kings of, of Israel, um, I, I just really, really touched. It says that the Lord kept on sending prophets and people back because He had compassion on them. And the Bible does say that as long as there are those who continue to respond to his word, and I hope every single one of you in this room responds to the word of God with obedience. The Lord will continue pouring out mercy and, and blessing. But, you know, it says here it got to the time where there was no remedy because no one was listening to him anymore. And I praise the Lord that um, we're in a church that uh, people are absolutely listening and surrendering to the Word of God. There are churches like this around Boston and throughout the United States and really the wor world. But um, what's our responsibility? Our responsibility, whatever else anyone else is doing, no one else may be obeying, you and I need to continue to hear the Word of God and do it.